be seated and we turn to God's word to Ezra chapter 4 this evening. I think you'll see as we go through just how suited those psalms are to this situation, to the kind of opposition and strife and the miseries that God's people are facing as they are returning back, as they are leaving the place of their exile, traveling up to Zion and finding all manner of lies, slander, opposition, and evil, evil working against them as the enemies of God try to oppose the work. Here now from Ezra chapter 4. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God in Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, uh, let us build with you. For we seek your God as you do, and we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esarhadron, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Yeshua, the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel, said to them, You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building, and they hired counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. In the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Artaxerxes also. Bishim, Mithridath, Tabel, and the rest of their companions wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the letter was written in the Aramaic script and translated into the Aramaic language. Rahum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to king Artaxerxes in this fashion. From Rahum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their companions, representatives of the Diantites and the uh, <laughs> Afarshakites, the Terraplites and the people of Persia and Erech and Babylon and Shushan, the Dehavites and the Elamites and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapur took captive and settled in the cities of Samaria and the remainder beyond the river and so forth. This is the copy of the letter that they sent him. To King Artaxerxes, from your servants, the men of the region beyond the river and so forth, let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem and are building the rebellious and evil city and are finishing its walls and repairing its foundations. Let it now be known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls are completed, they will not pay tax, tribute, or custom, and the king's treasury will be diminished. Now, because... We received support from the palace. It was not proper for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, and you will find in the book of the records and know that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and provinces, and that they have incited sedition within the city in former times for which cause this city was destroyed. We informed the king that if this city is rebuilt and her walls completed, the result will be that you will have no dominion beyond the river. 
the king sent an answer. To Rahim the commander, to Shimshai the scribe, to the rest of the companions who dwell in Samaria, and to the remainder beyond the river, peace, and so forth. The, the letter which you sent to us has been clearly read before me, and I gave the command, and a search has been made, and it was found that the city in former times has revolted against kings, and rebellion and sedition have been fostered in it. There have also been mighty kings over Jerusalem who have ruled over all the region beyond the river, and tax, tribute, and custom were paid to them. Now give the command to make these men cease, that the city may not be built until the command is given by me. Take heed now that you do not fail to do this. Why should damage increase to the herd of the kings? Now, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahim, Shimshai the scribe, and their companions, they went up in haste from Jerusalem against the Jews, and by force of arms made them cease. Thus the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased, and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Well, I hate to say amen to such things, but it is the word of the Lord. So amen it is. Uh, a tough word. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, again, we pray that you would give us wisdom, wisdom against our adversaries, that you would give us an understanding of the times in which we live and of what Israel ought to do in this generation, as we also are facing a variety of tactics of evildoers, as the evil one never rests against your people. We pray that we would be wise and that we would continue to do our advance, even if it is by both trowel and by sword. We pray that you would give us a courage also to meet uh, the opposition as long as that should last, for indeed that will have no end until we are at rest with you. May the church militant learn from these wise words in Jesus' name. Amen. Nothing attempted for God will go unopposed. We would expect that things would have been so much easier for these returning exiles. The last chapter, indeed, ended on such a high and triumphant note. I mean, the people who had come back from those ends of the earth, they came together barely a month back in the land. They all assembled, and they laid the foundation of the temple, and there was great rejoicing. Well, a few who remembered the days of Solomon were sad to compare it to those days, but it was a triumph for God's people and we expected now more. We would expect to read that God's faithful people worked diligently in the temple and completed it, and they all lived heavily ever after. Cue the lights, roll the credits, a Hollywood ending. But uh, this book is barely beginning. We, we think that, you know, isn't that the way it's supposed to go when you're serving the Lord? I mean, these people, God's people had proved their loyalty. They had proved their courage. They made this long journey, hundreds of miles from home to a desolate land and a very uncertain future. These pilgrims trusted the Lord's promise that he would bless them once again, bless them in a new place in the land of promise. They immediately set to work rebuilding the altar and reestablishing God's worship before they even had their crops in the fields, according to the word. Uh, of all God's people, of all those who they left behind, these few hundred thousand people, excuse me, these few tens of thousands of people, less than 50, these were the ones of all the people who were really doing God's work, who were giving all 
to do what God had called them to do. And in obedience, in careful obedience to his commands, we read last time. And they expected a, a great blessing. And up to this point, they had enjoyed a blessing. But so often in the Bible, as well as in Christian history, as well as probably in your life and mine, things don't go just like we expect. Like we think that we're doing the work of the Lord. We think that we are suffering. We think that we of all people who are really doing things should not find such unexpected setbacks. And at times when the kingdom of God seems to be forcefully advancing, it, it grinds to a halt and we think, what? why, Lord? What don't what we do wrong? Have you ever had that experience? Uh, whatever it is, you think that you're doing what God wanted you to do, though it cost you something to do it. But you put yourself on the line for the Lord. And then unexpectedly, suddenly nothing went your way. It was one obstacle after another and one failure after another. And, and, and nothing was accomplished. And you think, Lord, is this not what you wanted me to do? Or did I do something wrong? Is it, is it I? This is a revealing chapter. Nothing attempted for God will go unopposed. We're going to consider today the kind of opposition that the Lord people always face and why and how to overcome. That's really what the whole book is about, but you know, we're really getting into it now, so I'm going to put before you today from this chapter five kinds of opposition that were very soon brought against the people of God that eventually, in this chapter, brought their work to a halt. And how to think about these things. So, uh, first, pressure. Pressure to compromise. The first picture of opposition may not seem like opposition at all. Uh, some people who had uh, come south from, the Samaria, from Samaria to live in the abandoned lands of Judea after the exile, uh, the, these, na- these new inhabitants of the land, they come to Zerubbabel and the heads of the families, and, and they said, could we please help you build the temple? Because, you know, we also seek and worship the same God. And building the temple is a big job and certainly sounded like it would be a good thing to have more help, right? And the Jews said, no. We alone will build to the Lord, as the king told us to do. Uh, Why would they reject the help of the surrounding peoples who want to just do what they can for the name of the Lord? Well, you remember, though, who these people are. Uh, we were told a couple times in the passage that they are called uh, Samaritans. That probably rings a bell, but let's back up a little bit. Let's back up, in fact, all the way to the exile of the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., where the northern kingdom was taken into exile in, in, uh, by Assyria. The king of Assyria took them away, and they moved into the land, a bunch of people from other nations, many of them named here, to work the land and to send him tribute, a way to demoralize the people and make sure there would be no more rebellion. We read what happened in 2 Kings 24 through 41. And there we read that these new people uh, interbred with the remaining poor of the land that were still hanging around, and uh, they, they feared the Lord, yet serve their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. To this day, 
They continue practicing the former rituals. They do not follow the law and the commandment which the Lord had commanded the children of Jacob. These people that came and took over the land when Judah fell, uh, moved south, they intermarried then with the poor of Judah. And uh, there they are. They became known as the Samaritans, who continued as a people through the New Testament times. Why, even up till today, they still exist as a separate people. And you might remember that the Jews in Jesus' time despised them still, because religiously speaking, they were half-breeds who mixed idolatry in with God's worship. Syncretists. By the way, this is essential to understand the parable of the Good Samaritan or the healing of the ten lepers and the tensions which are not fully explained. Uh, Samaritans were regarded by many Jews as worse than Gentiles. These religious pluralists, these people that had a halfway religion were a grave danger because Israel had been led astray by this very means, by a, a, a creeping syncretism with the idolatry of the people of the land. These people did not observe God's laws of worship. They say here, oh yes, we've sacrificed to him since the days of the king of Assyria, but they were sacrificing without a priesthood, without the required offerings, not in the required way. And so what they say is not actually completely true when they say, we seek your God as you do. It was a kind of a halfway truth. And so it's an important step of faith for God's people to refuse the offer of help and a, par- a partnership that would have given them, frankly, a much, much, much easier time going forward, enjoying their support, not their hostile opposition. And you can imagine even some among the Jews who said, you know, we really need any help we can get. I mean, can't we get them to carry water or something? <laughs> okay. Um, Campbell Morgan comments, men of faith have often fallen into this blunder and have associated themselves with those not sharing their faith and therefore, in the deepest sense, opposed to their enterprises. And it's a cruel thing for them, Morgan points out, because it gives them a false sense of security, as as though they had good standing with God and the people of God. All right, well, if you think um, this does have a contemporary ring to it, you see, we, we do face very similar difficulties um, all the time, really. I mean, for example, our church is regularly invited to a multi-faith worship service that's being held here or there. Something like what I mentioned this morning, the National Cathedral, I mean, that goes on in town all the time, and I know enough people, and they call me and invite me. Uh, This uh, uh, pressure, uh, point one, pressure to Uh, compromise in this way. So, for example, here's an email I got just a couple months ago in March. Dear friends, uh, a friend of mine wrote, uh, you're likely aware that uh, uh, someone vandalized the street sign at the Blacksburg Jewish Community Center, marking it with a neo-Nazi symbol. The experience is negative, but the community response has been heartening. To help love beat hate the Blacksburg Jewish Community Center will hold an interfaith service on Thursday, March 23rd. I've attached a draft program. I encourage you to share it as you see appropriate. A bunch of details follow, a bunch of leaders from the community named. It concludes, we look forward to your participation in our service. Together, we will strengthen the love and minimize the hate in our town. (laughs) 
So which side am I on, love or hate? Um, and that, that program, by the way, lists out uh, the names of leaders from many local churches, synagogues, campus ministries, the NAACP, Unitarians, uh, so forth, all, all joining together to worship and advance unity and justice and oppose anti-Semitism, right? You say, well, boy, how come I wasn't invited to that? How come we didn't go? Why didn't David help lead the service? Why, did, why is he one of the ones who was not participating with all the pastors of Blacksburg? Am I anti-Semitic? Am I one of the haters? You see, we live in a very similar day where we live in a prevailing culture that is syncretist, pluralist, that still pressures God's people in a pleasant way through the interfaith, worship, service, offer, and other things. As I illustrated this morning, the whole thing actually makes no sense. It's a fundamental contradiction to have an interreligious worship service. I, I gave you an example this morning, but you understand, like, you'd have to turn off your brain and sacrifice truth on the altar of political correctness, knowing that if you don't, you're going to get malicious criticism and opposition, right? It will go so much better for you if you just join together with us. And, you know, I, I understand it. Look, it, it would be one thing if I was asked to sign my name on some petition for some law or to join in some lawsuit for religious liberty with people from other religious faiths. I mean, that would make sense because, well, we are all citizens of the same country and, in that sense, equally responsible to advance just laws. It's what Francis Schaeffer called co-belligerence, fighting together against a common enemy, at least all fighting the same enemy, that's one thing, very willing to do that. And we can oppose evil laws with any of our fellow citizens who oppose evil laws. But those who are not the Lord's people cannot do the work of the Lord. I mean, that should be obvious. And we can't worship the gods of the other nations and pretend that they are worshiping our God just the same. Uh, it, it makes no sense at all. But, of course, the temptation that I'm talking about, as I've illustrated it in a safe way, doesn't only come up in the in interfaith worship services with people that are my friends uh, in a worldly sense. This comes up whenever we are pressured to compromise or to join with others who are doing things contrary to God's will. Whenever people say, join with us to do this thing. Uh... The same test, the same struggle is fought daily in our hearts in a hundred lesser ways. Whenever we have to wonder if by doing this, are we forsaking our primary allegiance? Are we giving the Lord our primary allegiance no matter what? Now, of course, usually it's temptation to do evil. Will you compromise to go along and get along? Will you go along with the uh, religion of tolerance of our day, for example. Will you give in to your fears and desires, right? Go along and get along. The people of the land will be very good to you and help you if you join with them. But if you say to your co-workers, in whatever it is, this is not right, or this is not true, or this is plain not honest. If you say to your friends, look, I'm, I, I'm just not going there. I'm not 
doing that. I'm not going to be on that stage. I'm not going to be at this event. If you say to your employer, I'm sorry, I simply cannot sign what is written here, you are going to be on a long, long road of opposition. I spent the longest of the time on point one today because I think this is probably the greatest temptation that they faced and that we face. One that's right at the beginning of a fork. Look, go along to get along. Yeah, I mean, you can have your God, yes, but as long as you still join with us to do this thing, as long as you're with us, we'll be with you and it will be well with you. But if you don't go, there will be no end to our opposition. Have you felt that? That will be the struggle of this generation at work with laws in the world. And, and this, is, this is not written down to tell us about some point of history that has got some interesting names of people we've long since forgotten. This is, give, this, is, this is written to give a very, very human, real picture of what it will mean for you and for me when we say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord no matter what. Settle it. This book is written to help you settle it now, before the pressure's on, before the temptation comes, before the very slickly presented uh, enticements with benefits to you and yours come, that you might be a people set apart. Young people, this will be a lifelong struggle. We who are older have enjoyed a a, a nice season where for the most part we've been able to live as Christians without other kinds of opposition being too much. Oh, some of course, always, there's always some, but it's going to be more for you. Ezra may become a good friend. He, he wants you to know, these brave men, right at the beginning, say, no. We alone will build the Lord's house. And the king told us to do it. And that's the beginning of their real trouble. Suddenly, the people of the land turn against them fiercely. Briefly now, four more kinds of opposition they faced. We read in verse 4 of discouragement. Verse 4, the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building. (laughs) See, as Lewis so eloquently pointed out in screw tape letters, as the older demon says to the young apprentice, Wormwood, Wormwood, have you tried discouragement? Because it always works. Now, we're not told what the people of the land said. You could imagine them saying, Ah, this will never succeed. You might as well quit because you're on the wrong side of history, friends. Right? You're going to build a monument to hate here. You can imagine them planting seeds of doubt, uh, seeds of fear, demoralizing God's people. Uh, You know, it doesn't have to be very overt. Uh, God's people can get the message. You know, uh, today, National Public Radio never tires of telling us that Christianity is on the decline in America. Uh, whenever the new statistics come out, it's leading news all day. Um, 
Now, they won't tell you, of course, it's liberal churches that are in free fall, or that Christianity is growing worldwide, or that Earth's population is getting more religious, not less religious, right? But whatever shade of truth they can pick out to discourage you, they are very happy to tout. Whenever some Christian leader puts his foot in his mouth, somehow that's the quote in the newspaper. Whenever there's a story about people who are being taken to court because they took a stand for truth. That's what leads. If it leads, it leads. You think, um, oh, man, I, I cannot afford a lawsuit. I, I, I need my job right now. I better keep my head down, and I, I hope this blows over. And you haven't been persecuted. Nobody's actually done anything to you, but you have been discouraged and intimidated. It's a great, great tactic of the evil one. See, these are just Satan's devices in one chapter, right? It's a great tactic of the evil one in every generation that the enemies of God's people are only too glad to oblige. They know how to exploit your fears. What are you afraid of? Well, the devil knows. and He knows how to exploit it through the enemies of God's people in the world. It's all designed to make you think what am I doing? You know, I really should just fit in and act like everyone else, or I'm, I'm going to get fired or worse. That's discouragement, okay? Compromise, point one. The real trouble starts when you won't compromise. Point two, discouragement, leading to, point three, lies. Lies, verse five. They hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. Uh, whether that means there were counselors operating at the royal court across the Jordan or locally or, or both, we are not told. We, we do read that in the letter here that, uh, there were, they, that, that these enemies were using lies, half-truths, and subtlety in, uh, to, to the officials to undermine the work and the leadership of, Jerusalem, of Jerobobal and Yeshua. They're planning to rebel against the king. And we only say this because we love you. They're going to stop paying taxes. Uh, you can imagine them saying things like this. Look, these, uh, these idiots here are only lining their own pockets with the construction money. You know, there's rumors of infidelity or immorality. You know, they're really just out for themselves. You know, this whole thing is really shady business, you know. Wink, wink. They later uh, wrote a letter and said... Um, King, we don't want you to be dishonored by these rebellious Jews. You better look it up in your record books and find out that this city, Jerusalem, has a long history being rebellious, which actually was true. A half-truth, perhaps, but true it was. Once again, it seems that the tactics of the evil one have not changed today. Right? Discouragement is not going to be enough at any time. Um, remember a few years ago in the newspaper in the Washington Post, they wrote that the members of the religious right are largely poor, uneducated, and easy to command. I mean, all right. Well, maybe it's half-truths, right? So, <laughs> uh, After the September 11th attacks this morning, I mentioned, um, remember what they said? Some of you remember what they said. They, they, they didn't say the, 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 the problem is militant Islam or anything. Like that. The problem is religion. The problem is this fundamentalist religion of all kinds. 
In fact, anyone who believes the historic faith of any religion is called a fundamentalist. And I remember the day I read the report and I realized they're talking about me. These narrow-minded, intolerant, Bible-believing Christians are the problem. These are just like the Taliban, trying to impose their views on everyone else. What we need is freedom from religion. The devil, Jesus says, doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he's a liar and the father of lies. So we read in the passage how long these lies and intimidations went on. Yeah, was it a week? I don't remember. Was it two weeks? <laughs> Verse 5, all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia, and then in the reign of Ahasuerus, the beginning of his reign, they wrote this accusation against the inhabitants, so forth. And in the days of Artaxerxes also, they, whatever. In other words, look, it never stopped. It never stopped. New lies, new troubles, the discouragements, the wearing down never stopped. There was no making these people happy. God's people were opposed by temptation to compromise, by discouragement, by lies, fourth, by government coercion. From their own government, at this point, Ezra summarizes what they faced for nearly 100 years. Now, you remember, remember Cyrus was called my anointed, and he sent the people back, and he gave them. He said, go back and build a house for the Lord, and I'll pay for it, right? And here's all the articles that, that Nebuchadnezzar took. Go back and pray for me. All right, down to verse 23. We have this long historical parenthesis where Ezra here uh, has to pause, and uh, he carefully names the various kings and the kind of opposition uh, at every step of rebuilding the temple and the city and the walls, um, all, all, the way, all the way down to the, the letter and so forth at the end, and then finally at the last verse, we're brought back, and then from that point on, we continue, continue with the story. But he, he just says, now look, I want you to understand that even though we started with the blessing of the government and the help, from then on, from uh, uh, Warp had 50 years to Ahasuerus, or Xerxes I, as he's known to history. The, the enemies send an accusation, and uh, yeah, uh, the, the people of Judah and Jerusalem doesn't say whether it was successful or not, but uh, already the, uh, the government is being lobbied to stop the people of God. In verse 7, we tie Warp ahead 20 more and see the accusations written under King Artaxerxes. The warning the people was not going to pay tribute or custom or toll, and the royal revenue is going to be diminished. And furthermore, Jerusalem is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings, and so forth. And, uh, well, he says, you better tell them to stop or else. Uh, it takes us all the way down to 460 B.C., perhaps even as far as 445 B.C. Uh, into that reign. So the point is um, here... Um, Ezra pauses and just says, look, uh, what started here with, with some counselors being hired, it just kept on going. It's all been a trial, a hard, long trial. The enemies of God's people never cease to get the government to put a stop to our work and God's worship. During different reigns, two different reigns, they actually succeeded in making God's work illegal, the work he had called them to do. They succeeded in getting it 
officially stopped. In verse 21, the king makes a decree to stop the work. The city must not be rebuilt until the king makes a decree to do so. Uh, now the might of the empire of Persia stands in their way. Um, you know, it was great when, when the emperor said, hey, go back, I'm going to pay for that. Now he says, you better not pick up a brick. You can answer to me. Now I say, although we've been in a much better shape in this country than in many other countries, the, the, the enemy never ceases to seek to work through government laws, judicial cases, and other kinds of official persecution to enact laws to oppose Christ's work in the world, to prohibit Christians from living as God would have us to live or going as the Lord told us to go. We have creative access countries, as Julia told us, right? The whole thing is coordinated in uh, secretive language with uh, creative means of getting into countries and finding ways of abiding by the laws so that the work can still go on as much as possible. We have to face resistance from the inside as well as opposition from the outside. You know, a, a, a couple years ago at the outbreak of COVID, our country's health officials held a press conference telling the churches and the synagogues and so forth to close. And it was, it was a fearful time, and, and none of us knew about COVID. It had just come, come out as far as we knew, and we felt this pressure from the, from the government. They said, this thing kills 5% of those infected with it. We thought, man... Uh, you know, in a couple of weeks, it was obvious that the official reports were wrong and that we just resumed meeting. Um, it was some time before a lawsuit was filed by some churchmen over on the other side of the mountains and uh, able to force the governor to admit that he does not have the right to shut down a church or to threaten a, a church by the health department or anything like that. And he gave up the right uh, to uh, impose his laws, on, at least on churches, less than 250. Uh, that got rid of the lawsuit, although it never, never, uh, never resolved whether he had the right to do it in large churches or not. But nevertheless, um, we had to answer questions among some of our own people. Are we right to do that? Are we risking lives? None of us want to risk lives. We, we want to be careful. We want to obey the law so far as possible. We want, we want to honor the king so far as we can, even if the laws we think are, 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 are frankly not, not even very sensical. You, you uh, know that we bent over backward even in our family to uh, try to accommodate the laws, right? They said no more than 50 people can meet uh, together. We're like, okay. We try to limit our home gatherings to, uh, to 50. They said no more than 10 can meet. I went to my elders and said, I cannot be a minister and have only 10, right? I, I want your permission, elders, to have civil disobedience here, right? First of all, there's only 10. There's already 10 in my family. We have one person over. We're in violation of the law. But even that, like, I, it, the work of the Lord must go on, legal or illegal, it must continue, right? I, I'm willing to be a fool to obey the laws that I can obey, but those that cannot be obeyed, I must not, right? But this is the ongoing struggle. Well, that was kind of an exception in COVID. We, generally speaking, we've not been molested here, and that's been, been great. But my, my point is, 
the enemies of God's people are not sufficiently satisfied by lobbing lies, by intimidation, by oppression. They, they want force. They want it to stop. And in many, many places in the world, they have got it to stop. Well, greatly to be diminished. And it is hard to get into many countries of the world today, I grant. Well, we, we come back. We, we, we saw how this all started with a brave no. We're not going to compromise. It led to discouragement. It led to lies. It led to government coercion. And finally, violence, at least the threat of violence is being mentioned here in verses 23 and 24. We read that these enemies, they get their reply from the king. And when they get the reply, they didn't just come with a letter and say, by the way, we got a letter, you should probably read this. Oh no, they came ready to kill them unless they put down their trowels. They came armed. This is the law of the king. Now you stop it or else. And it's on this very unhappy note that the chapter ends and returns us to the day of Zerubbabel, 536 B.C., when the work of the house in Jerusalem stopped and remained stopped for the next 16 years. Sorry for the jolt in the middle of the chapter, but he wants to, he wants to point out some important things. And this might help to answer some questions that you have, some important questions about what this means for your life. Um, first, wh- why does this passage... Uh, have this pause in the middle to describe all these different kinds of opposition that arose under different kings? Why, why group that all together here and not spread it out historically as a historical writers want to do? Well, the reason is very clear, I think, and important. He puts, the, he puts a hundred years of struggle here to let you know there will always be opposition. Fierce opposition to the work will exist in every generation. You cannot fall into the trap of thinking that you can wait and do the work at an easier time. I mean, there may be an easier time. Don't get me wrong. Some things are easier than others. Some times are easier than others. And, and, but we must not convince ourselves that we should just stop rather than find some way forward. Maybe we think uh, things will get easier later. Maybe God doesn't want it done now, right? We lost all of our visas in several countries a few years ago, and we, we had this real issue and this struggle. Does, does the Lord want us to wait, to go in some other way, to minister in some other direction? It's, it's hard to know, but one thing that we knew is that we had to go forward still, This is a very important truth because, as the chapter reminds us, if you don't compromise, well, whether you stop or not, there will always be such opposition to the service and people of God. Jesus told his disciples, we read it earlier, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first, and you must not expect a different response from the world than Jesus himself. Why this historical uh, uh, sidebar in the middle of this, including a letter that actually came years later, right? Why break it off like this? To let you know it's the way it always is. 
Let's just put it all together and you can see it in one big ugly heap. God's work is always opposed. Second, where's God in all this? Has God abandoned his people? We're told earlier that God wanted the temple built. Cyrus, my anointed, all that. We read in Ezra 1 that he moved the heart of Cyrus to make a decree that the people should go to Jerusalem and build the temple. We also read in Ezra 1 that God moved the hearts of the people to go back and do the work. Oh, God was in it from the beginning. We're told several times right at the beginning, the rise of resistance does not mean that God is no longer with his people. The rise of the resistance does not mean that they are wrong for doing the work or should stop. Well, if God moved the heart of Cyrus and he moved the heart of people, why does he move the hearts of these people? Why are they suffering these things now? Is it because they did something wrong? Oh, man, this is where the, this is where the, the long nights come in. This is where you really start to wonder, like, Lord, wh- what am I doing when I'm trying to serve you? And, and it's one thing after another, one failure after another. Nothing is going forward. Is it because I did something wrong? You know, while trials and afflictions may be punishment for our sins, and they are it sometimes, clearly, Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, that is by no means necessarily the case. There is no indication here that God's people had done anything to provoke this hostility except to be faithful to God, which, as I said earlier, is enough. On the contrary, when the enemies of God wanted to share in the work, the people bravely said, we are going to be faithful and do what we need to do ourselves. This merely increased the hostility. The more they were faithful, the more the enemies of God exerted themselves and the more likely that real troubles would hinder them. This happens twice, as I say, that it actually did hinder them. The trial that seemed to be the direct result of the determined... Sorry, their trial seemed to be the direct result of their faithfulness. They wouldn't have suffered this if they had not been faithful. You know, God does chasten his children for their sins, but that is not always the way things work, as here. In our day, still a very sizable component of Christian people are being taught that if your faith is good and true, and that if you're living right as you ought to live, that you will prosper and things will go well with you. Um, that, that is true spiritually. It is often true in other ways. But to say that this is always the case is a great error. Christians must never allow their circumstances to produce doubt, to separate them from the source of their hope and peace, cause them to lose touch with the true strength and meaning of their lives in God, to keep them from finding some way to go forward. I know some of you have faced debilitating trials that have outright hindered you from going this way, that you were expecting to go, that you were sure the Lord had called you to go. You probably spent some hard nights thinking, Lord, what what do you want of me? Is it me? Right? Uh, Paul, he he, he wants to go north. He wants to go to Ephesus, right? He's going to get there. But he wants to go, he can't go. He, wants to, he, tries, he tries to go up through this way. No. God won't allow him. 
all right, uh, Lord. And then later he gets this dream, man in Macedonia, come over here and help us. You need to go west. God, God had an appointment. I mean, eventually things worked out for Paul. But we, we, we shouldn't think that just because we were on this path, which we were sure that God had put ahead of us, and, 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 that, 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 and we met all this opposition, that God intended something else. So now the question is, all that being agreed, why is God allowing this to happen? Why is God allowing these people to show up sword in hand and say, you put that down and stop or I'm going to run you through? What does he want? What is God doing? We're not told. But this much we can say for sure. It's clear that in the Bible, trials and afflictions have a great many good purposes in God's economy. These things are evil, but you know that verse, Romans 8.28. I hope you know it. That all things work together for good to those who love the Lord that are called according to his purpose, right? These trials that we face in this life of all sorts do work in various ways to develop perseverance and courage and faith and trust and awareness of our inability and God's ability. Samuel Rutherford, in fact, wrote that faith's necessity in a fair day is never known or right. You have smooth sailing? Well, it's hard to know if you're even a child of God because we, we read that all those whom he receives as children are, are scourged. He chastens every son that he receives. Faith must be tested. It must be exercised, Peter wrote. It, it must be strengthened in trial. Consider it pure joy, James writes, when you face trials of many kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Uh, tr- trials are sent. I mean, I'm not, I can't make any absolute declaration here where the word of God is silent. I'm saying in general, faith is tested. It is exercised. It's strengthened in trial. It's the trials, uh, when we fail, make us humble, make us dependent, make us watchful and prayerful, make us realize just how weak we are. They serve the purpose of helping us to lose our lives in this world. And for these general reasons, trials are everywhere to be expected in the Bible and said to be essential to holiness and godliness. And in every generation, we are going to be experiencing mysterious, hidden resistance, discouraging resistance, governmental resistance, forceful resistance. And we say, God, I thought that the king's heart was in your hand and you turn it like a watercourse. Why this to us? Sometimes we can trace the good results of these things. I mean, there was a fierce persecution that broke out in Jerusalem against the saints there. They fled for their lives with what they could carry. And, of course, the gospel then went into the diaspora, went into the many communities where the Jews were living, and it was a great advance for the gospel. So sometimes it's explained to us. Sometimes we're just told in general, these are essential for the Christian life. Through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. Sometimes we read the benefits. These are key for the strengthening of various Christian graces. A lot of times, you're just not told. Are you going to still serve him when you don't know? You know, God put difficulties in the lives of Israel when they were in the wilderness 
and he made them hunger until they learned that they are to live by every word of God and not by bread alone. We're going to have great and mysterious difficulties in our journey with God, and things are not going to go as we had hoped. We must not give up. We must not stop doing the work. We must not wait for a convenient season. No matter the kind of resistance, we must carry out the work of the Lord as we see, for example, the apostles of Jesus doing in the scriptures. They can't do this, so they do that. But it's either give it all or walk away. There's no middle ground. The call has always been take up your cross and follow him. When discouraged, don't lose sight of the goal. We are going to be with the Lord for eternity, and it will be paradise at the end and every tear wiped away. And your labor is never in vain in the Lord. And the perfect comforter will comfort us for all eternity. It's going to end triumphantly. This book ends triumphantly, right? Good things are coming. I mean, keep that in mind. Hold on to your faith. Do not become overwhelmed by discouragement. You got the lies, shake it off. Do the work God has called you to do. If not here, then there. If not this way, then that way. But it must go on. In conclusion, Ezra 4 is a chapter chapter that teaches us about the reality of doing God's work in a hostile world. It says we need to be discerning and faithful in choosing our partners and allies in God's work. Better love the Lord. We should not compromise with those who do not share our faith or vision, but trust in God's provision and guidance. The Lord's work, the Lord's people, the Lord's way. We need to be prepared and resilient in facing opposition and resistance. We should not be surprised or discouraged by the attacks of our enemies, but rely on God's strength and grace. And we need to be hopeful and persevering in the work of the Lord in spite of all setback and delay. We should not give up or lose heart, for when the work is interrupted or hindered, we, waiting on God's timing and plan, seeking him, can find some other way. But you be faithful in little, and you will be faithful in much. This chapter reminds us that our God is nevertheless sovereign and faithful over his work and his people. He's the one who brought them there. He's the one who put them into this cauldron of affliction. But he will not allow his work stopped or his people destroyed by their enemies. No, we we learn he will surely fulfill his promises for his glory and our good. And that is the real story of Ezra. So let us pray. We come to thank you for the scriptures, O Lord, once again for the word of God, confessing our need of being taught again of the first principles of the oracles of God and being instructed by your spirit. We pray, Spirit of God, that you would be our leader in such a time as this. Come, we pray, and give us an understanding of such incidents happening long ago that we might have wisdom to face the trials right around the corner from us. And we pray that by godly wisdom and by manly courage, we might reject the siren calls of our day of unfaithfulness, standing firm in the evil day and having done all 